It might not be your thing, but I don't know if you've seen uh, the latest Batman film, The Dark Knight Rises. I know some of you have seen it, so I thought, there we go, there's a few hands saying yes. Um, It's the final part of the remaking of Batman. It's the final part of the trilogy. Um, Christopher Nolan, they're pretty dark. Uh, Personally, I I very much enjoyed it. The film has attracted quite a a wide range of reviews and ideas. Some people very positive, um, some far less so, much more negative. Uh, And yet the thing that struck me, and I think increasingly through superhero films of our day, is that, that the hero has some sort of a a weakness, very obvious flaw. They're, they're threatened, and that weakness seems to be integral to the plot. Um, so in the latest Batman, Dark Knight Rises, his weaknesses are many and obvious. He is financially uh, ruined, he is physically broken, his, his friends walk out on him, and he has this, this crazy compassion for Gotham City that they don't deserve or warrant. And yet, despite that, and because of that, well, so there is ultimate victory in the end in this film. To spoil it for you, he ends up having to rely on other people to come and rescue him and save him to succeed. One review said, it is like a superhero film without a superhero. There are swathes of the film that pass without its notional hero appearing on screen in full. And I think these, these superhero films with weak heroes appeal to us because they're just more realistic. And we can associate with them. We're able to engage with them because people are real like us. It captures our imagination because we know what it means in life to be weak and yet to succeed in some way. So there is something very attractive about the superhero who comes through and is sort of uh, Teflon, nothing hits them, they're fine. They save the day and it's all good. But better still one who struggles and succeeds. But it seems to me it's a bizarre situation that in places like this, in churches, we can still imagine there are such things as Christian superheroes, people who are strong and not weak, people who are incredibly patient or infinitely gifted, able to fill out all the rotors, so generous that they can just scrub away our financial deficits. They're amazing at sharing their faith. They never get anxious. They read their Bible and they pray every single day. They're always trusting, they're always full of faith, and they are never grumpy. They are the folk who will come and save the day for us. And they're out there somewhere. And because we're not like that, when we think, well, that's somebody else's job, I'm not quite ready to serve with that yet, or to say that yet. Because I'm not quite up to scratch. When I get that sorted, then I'll be useful. Then I'll get stuck in. But for now, I'm waiting for this superhero. And it seems to me from 2 Corinthians 4, from the verses that Ben read for us, and and to be honest from the Bible as a whole, that that is frankly rubbish. It is in, in the Lord's hands, weakness is actually strength. And so as we seek to look ahead for the next 12 months, to refocus, to rededicate, to 
commit ourselves to follow him. Here's the thing I want you to grasp this morning. This is we need to be a church that knows that fragility, our fragility, can bring fruitfulness. Okay, our fragility can bring fruitfulness. It sounds counterintuitive. It sounds topsy-turvy, but I think it is utterly vital. Vital for us as individuals in our daily living for Jesus, wherever he's put us. But for us as a church as well, as a church family. So just two words to hang our points off. First one, fragility. Second one in a bit, fruitfulness. And the overarching picture he uses here in verse 7, very well known, we have this treasure in jars of clay. We, we don't quite know what these jars were, is the honest answer. Paul may have in mind simply the very common vessels that they would use to carry around food and drink and parchments. It might be the earthenware lamps that were common of those days. Uh, a world without electricity. So you would have this clay pot and in it would be olive oil and a little floating stick and it would produce light for you. It might even be referring back to chapter 2. If you know 2 Corinthians, this triumphal procession, this celebration of the victory of Jesus and the valuable plunder in those pictures will be carried in urns. We don't quite know what he's getting at, but we do know what he means. Paul is being very honest and clear about what he is like. Do you see what he's saying? He says, I am fragile and inconsequential and I am flimsy and I am weak. Paul says, I am the cheap brown tissue paper within which is the beautiful brooch. I am the ancient frayed cable that brings to you your electricity. I am the easily broken eggshell within which is, is life. Paul is forgettable and unremarkable and frail. And because of that, and despite that even, so he is he's vulnerable. Do you see it in verse 8 to 9? He says, we are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not abandoned. Struck down, but not destroyed. I think there, with a bit of artistic license, there are four Ps there. Uh, pressed, perplexed, persecuted and pounded. Verse 8, hard-pressed. Squeezed into all kinds of tight corners. That's, that's just how Christian ministry is pressured by the countless stresses outside our control. Stresses from a hostile world. Sadly, stresses from other Christians. He's hard-pressed. He's perplexed. Head in hands. Bewildered. Utterly at a loss. Not knowing where to turn next. Why have they done that? How do I deal with that situation? Should I even bother to try and deal with that situation? Do I need to meet up with that person and talk to them? What do I do? Perplexed. People are silly and sinful. And the world is broken. And so the job of ministry for, for an upfront minister or for all of us can at times just be perplexing. Not knowing who or how or what or why. Verse 9, he's persecuted, hunted like a wild animal, whether it be from, from Jews or Gentiles. People hounded Paul out of town. 
So of course it's sort of low level for us. And we are unusually protected from that kind of persecution in, in our country, within the world, in our stage in church history. But maybe you know something of that in your daily life, that persecution for being a Christian. People might still be pleasant to you, but they're not particularly impressed with the fact that you're a Christian. It seems to me as you read scripture, persecution is the norm for living the Christian life. We don't go looking for it, but to be faithful to the Lord, we expect it. So verse 9, persecuted, and then secondly in verse 9 again, uh, struck down, we'll call it pounded. Literally it's thrown prostrate by a heavy blow. Later in the letter, Paul famously talks about some of the the pounding that he's been through, very graphically, his suffering during his ministry. And, and he does so to show us that he's authentic, to show us that he's a real apostle. Let me read to you from chapter 11. Five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I've been constantly on the move. I've been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my fellow Jews, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false believers. I have laboured and toiled and often gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I have been cold and naked. Besides everything else, I face the daily pressure of my concern for all the churches. Who is weak and I do not feel weak? Who is led into sin? And I do not inwardly burn. Paul is a jar of clay. Feeble. He knows what it means to suffer. And so my question at least is, well, what's the secret, Paul? If that's what you're really like, then, then how do you press on? How have you been faithful? Where does your resilience come from? Are you simply some sort of masochistic uh, warrior? Are you just tough? And I think the answer is Easter Sunday. Look at verse 10, verse 10 to 11. He says, We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. For we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that his life may also be revealed in our mortal body. So then death is at work in us, but life is at work in you. He has died to self with Christ. Verse 10, he carries around the death of Jesus in his body. Verse 11, he's given over to death for Jesus' sake. Verse 12, death is at work in us. So when I become a footnote and it's all about Jesus then life comes. Then he can properly use me and empower me. I recently dipped into a book which I was supposed to bring and wave at you but I've forgotten it. Um, it's by a doctor called Dr. Gaius Davies and his genius Grief and Grace. Fantastic book. He's looking at suffering and success the life of the Christian. And what he does is a sort of historical study looking at 
particular key individuals who have been amazingly used by the Lord, uh, men and women, uh, and he's just very honest. It seems to me too often Christian biographies sort of challenge us and then crush us because we think these people are just too great. They were too faithful. I can't really stand up to them. So he looks at Luther of the 16th century, Bunyan of the 17th century, William Cowper of the 18th, Lord Shaftesbury of the 19th, and so on and so on and so on. People who were mightily used by God. You can see history testifies to that. And yet when you get the microscope out and look at their lives, you see they were pretty broken. They suffered from compulsive tendencies. They suffered from anxiety and depression and guilt and darkness and doubt. And so he demonstrates how divine grace uses weak people like us. With our little niggles. With our weaknesses. People who are jars of clay. There are three things just to chew over if I might in light of this fragility, the first is to say and to remind you that superhero Christians don't exist. They don't think somebody else will do it. That's just not reality. The danger is in our aspirational culture we watch X Factor or we read the celebrity gossip and we think God should do things like that too in church. Raising up individuals to do mighty things to be famous who are awesome. And no, no, no. The reality is 99.99999% of the time it's just folk like us. Fragile people. Vulnerable people. But being quietly faithful in the nitty gritty. It's not the way we would do it. If we were to give somebody a beautiful brooch, we would put it in an expensive box and wrap it in posh paper. If we were to have important electricity cables, we would make sure they are wrapped and wrapped and wrapped, protected, well insulated you've got treasure to look after, we would put them in sturdy containers, not in eggshells. And so it seems to me in our Christian lives we can easily think, well that's somebody else's job. Somebody who's more qualified. But actually he uses people like us. We say, well I'm not good enough to help with that. Or I can't talk to that person of Jesus because my words just get muddled and I don't know what to say. People like us. God puts treasure in jars of clay. The second one is we don't need to keep wearing masks because we're all weak and we're all fragile and we're all vulnerable so you can be honest about your sin and your fears and your depression and your anxiety and your needs or your cowardice or whatever it is that makes you feel weak because we're all weak and fragile and vulnerable. God puts treasure in jars of clay. The other thing is for I think, us as a church or the kind of church who we are as well, often if we're thinking about people to, to train and to send, maybe that might be you, you're thinking, where might I be in ten years' time? Might the Lord be calling me into missionary work or church leadership or positions of responsibility? I think there are some non-negotiables, there's some particularly character, but some gifting as well. And yet it seems to me very often we just look for those who are strong or who give the impression of strength rather than those who are weak. So I sometimes wonder if we set the bar too high 
looking for the, the elite that don't really exist. Or in fact, if they are elite, they're probably lying. We look for sturdy and robust jars rather than weak and flimsy ones. Though God puts treasure in jars of clay, we are weak and fragile. That's okay. That's the plan. Because God brings fruitfulness from fragility. Now as you read the Bible, I take it we shouldn't be surprised that this happens. Because Easter Friday was followed by Easter Sunday. From, from darkness came light. From death comes life. It's the way God works. And so as we die, so God brings life. As we make his death our own, so he gives us his life. In this jar of clay, we have treasure. Now, what is this treasure? We've so far slightly skirted around it, but the most precious thing in the universe, it is the gospel of God. So just glance back to the previous uh, few verses there. What is this treasure? It is the gospel, verse 4, the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Or verse 6, it is the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. God's glory, that is his value and his worth and his awesomeness. But it's seen in a man as he dies on the cross. A man who, who gives us light and life through his death. It's the gospel of Jesus. So read again verse 10 to 12. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. Or again, verse 11, so that his life may also be revealed in our mortal body. And again in verse 12, but life is at work in you. The death and the weakness of Paul that he encounters on a day-by-day-by-day basis is, is beautifully joined and fused together with the life that comes from the resurrection. So that his life becomes our life. Our resurrection life just as Christ dies and life comes, so we die day by day and life comes. So this for the Christian, every single day is both an Easter Friday and an Easter Sunday. As we die with Christ and we're raised with Christ, so we put to death the old self and we put on the new. Every day is an Easter Friday. And every day is an Easter Sunday. Now some of us need to remember those buts, if I can put it like that. He's hard-pressed, but not crushed. He's perplexed, but not in despair. He's persecuted, but not abandoned. He's struck down, but not destroyed. We feel overly fragile and overly crushed and paralysed. But remember Easter Sunday, the resurrection, life. And we need to say as well that we must not be triumphalistic about this kind of resurrection life. It doesn't mean that it's going to be easy now. 
Often people can peddle that. You've become a Christian, well, in some way you oughtn't suffer now. You can float on through life. But no, no, Paul had these scars. He was hard-pressed. He was perplexed. He was persecuted. He was pounded. Resurrection life doesn't excuse us from suffering. It enables us to press on through it. Notice too, in verse 12, the end there. So I find that very surprising. I think if you read verse 10 and verse 11, at least you want to read verse 12 as saying this, So then, death is at work in us, but life is at work in us. That would be the natural flow. But it's you, isn't it? Life is at work in you. So as I die to self, as I die with Christ, so Paul says, my life is poured out into you, you Corinthians, who are frankly a bit of a nightmare with your divisions and your pride and your immaturity. Paul dies and so gives life to the Corinthian church. It seems to me that that's again how it works. So in our weakness and our fragility, we we put to death self and we live for Christ. And God uses that to bring fruit into the lives of others. Daily dying to self so that others might live. I, I spent some time this week looking back over my life and just being incredibly thankful for those who... Those people who died and so poured life into me. I think of youth leaders in Oxford many moons ago, faithfully, week by week by week, would come and would give talks and would get alongside us and would put up with our stupid questions. And yet from that came life. Or I think of, uh, well, at university, UCCF folks, staff workers, relay workers, Um, who gave time and energy and patience and invested in a clueless 18-year-old. And I'm thankful for them. I think of generous church leaders who no doubt have had late nights, early mornings, writing talks, wearing holes in their knees in prayer, modelling in a costly way the Christian life, dying to self, and so bringing life. Or maybe just kind church members, just Christians who have taken me under their wings, who have brought me into their lives and given life. And the thing is, I look back at those people and I think they're not superheroes. They're just normal. Normal Christians, but living intentional lives, weak, fragile Christians who know the way it works. Know that in these treasures of clay, in these jars of clay, sorry, there is treasure. Maybe that's a thing to do this week, just to look back over the last 10, 15, 20, 30, 40, 50 years and be thankful for those jars of clay who who have been used and put life into you. Maybe though your question is, well, I'm not sore, Paul. I still look at you and I think you were pretty sorted It seems to me you could fight your corner pretty well on a theological tussle. I'm not convinced you're that weak, actually. Is this some sort of false humility from Paul? He still seems like a bit of a superhero to us, doesn't he? 
Well, do you remember later in Corinthians, um, he talks of this thorn in his flesh. It's in uh, chapter 12, if it would help you, I'm going to read it to us. We don't know what it was, it might be some sort of ailment or an illness, it might perhaps be an individual who, who doggedly sought to oppose Paul again and again and again, undoing his work. We do know the reason and the outcome for this thorn. I'm going to read to you from verse 7. He says, in order to keep me from becoming conceited, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. So the reason for this thorn, it was to keep him humble and weak. To stop him being conceited. And the outcome, well, was Christ's power. It was fruit in the lives of others. So I want to finish by asking, what is your weakness this morning? And I want you to answer that rather than to answer for the person next to you or somebody else in the room. It might be shyness. It might be depression, anxiety, darkness, doubt, brokenness from past experiences. Maybe just lacking energy to get up and go. Maybe broken relationships. Maybe a job that you hate. Maybe a sin that entangles you. Maybe a physical illness. Maybe something else that no one knows about. But you see, your weakness, your thorn, doesn't disqualify you from ministry. If anything, it actually qualifies you. It makes you useful. Because when we see it in the right, it means that we don't rely on ourselves and we rely on him. So again, think of perhaps a cowley plant starting in October. A small group going to be a bit more intentional in looking to reach a particular community further out in East Oxford. Six, seven, eight people. Looks pretty small. Pretty weak. And yet God is strong. He brings fruit. Or we think, goodness, they're going to go. They're going to start to pull out from various ministries here. Who's going to fill those gaps? I can't, because I'm too weak. No, no, no. Maybe you're meant to fill the holes that they leave behind. Maybe it's just you in your life. And you think, I just feel too weak. I'm not sure whether I can stand out for Christ in the office, or in my class, or at the school gates. And yet know that in the midst of weakness, God is strong. That's how he works. He brings the fruit. 
I'm going to finish with a quote from a quotation from uh, Charles Spurgeon, who always put things well. Uh, he was a, a pastor from London um, uh, a few hundred years ago. He says this: he says, "The primary qualification for serving God without any amount of with any amount of success, and for doing God's work well and triumphantly, is a sense of our own weakness." When God's warrior marches forth to battle strong in his own might, when he boasts, I know that I shall conquer my own right arm and my conquering sword shall unto me get the victory. Defeat is not far distant. God will not go forth with that person who marches in his own strength. He who reckons on victory thus has reckoned wrongly. For it is not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. They who go forth to fight, boasting of their prowess, shall return with their banners trailed in the dust and their armour stained with disgrace. Let's pray that God will make us fruitful as we know our weakness.